0: Thanks for joining me on The Barry Sacks Show. I'm Barry Cockroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We'll be exploring the stories behind these great musicians with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode every now and again. It's really turning into some kind of random show now. The details of each episode, including a transcript of the show notes, And any links can be found at barrysax.com. Preston Duncan is an internationally acclaimed performer and educator based out of Minneapolis, United States. He's appeared as soloist throughout the United States, Latin America and Europe. He's performed on over 65 occasions as soloist with large ensembles, including the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, the Bowling Green State University Philharmonic, the University of Minnesota Symphony Orchestra, and many others. He's performed internationally in such prestigious venues as the Salverdi in Milan, the American Embassy in Paris, the Royal Conservatory of Brussels, the National Conservatory in Zagreb, and Disneyland in Los Angeles. As a chamber musician, he has performed with the Minnesota Orchestra, the Indianapolis Pops, the Minnesota Pops, the Indianapolis Symphony, and with such acclaimed artists as Rosemary Clooney, Asmira Woodward-Page, Marvin Hamlish, and Jeremy Denk. Duncan was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to Paris, France, and currently teaches saxophone at the University of Minnesota. Please welcome my guest today, American saxophonist Preston Duncan. Preston, thanks very much for agreeing to have this conversation. I believe we first talked about this almost a year ago when we were in Zagreb. Oh, yeah. And I had this little problem because it was the last day of the World Sax Congress and I had too much beer in my fridge and I, kn- I knew I couldn't <laughs> take it with me back to Australia. And uh, you turned up with Sonsax, I think.
1: We were there to help.
0: <laughs> and that's what I've learned about you. You're a very helpful guy.
1: Right. Well, you know, certain things.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You're in a, a, an unusual situation because I believe that you studied saxophone One of your teachers, at least, was Dr. Eugene Rousseau. And you are now teaching at Minnesota, where he used to teach. Yeah. So things have gone full circle for you.
1: Yeah, they really have. I mean, I did my undergrad uh, with Dr. Rousseau at Indiana, and then I I studied in France with Formo, and then I did my master's with John Sampin, which is uh, completely different than either one of those. And then I worked with Ken Rodnofsky and then I came back to get my doctorate with Dr. Rousseau yeah.
0: So you've had, I mean, you've just listed teachers there that everybody's probably familiar with, but you've had great teachers and also you've sort of come back to one of the teachers that you first started with for your undergrad. Right. So, I mean, was Russo's teaching different once you'd been through the other teachers? Had it, or different to you, at least, was your perspective different? So it seemed different.
1: Well, I mean, all of my teachers were were very different. Uh, so I always say, you know, from so sort of from each teacher, I got kind of a different perspective, but also sort of a different focus. So, like John Sampin, for example, um, was a really good is is still a very good performer and a really good uh, teacher to coach, to be a good performer. Um, and, you know, he, of course he has all of the saxophone skill and, and all of the interpretive skill also. Uh, but that for me is what I kind of got from him. And then uh, from Formeau, uh, I think he's just a beautiful player. And uh, we had a bit of a language barrier. He speaks English reasonably well. I don't speak French as well as I should. Uh, having been there for a year, but I certainly tried. Uh, But what I really got from him in lessons was he would play something and then I would play it and he would play it and I would play it. He would say, you know, a little feedback. And um, really for me, my sound and and the way that I approach the saxophone has a lot to do uh, with having listened to him from just like the technical side. And then Kenneth Rodnofsky is uh, an amazing musician when I would bring something in for him uh, he would have so many interpretive ideas and so many uh, suggestions and perspectives and he's a very thoughtful uh, person. So for, I really got kind of that, that was my main focus with him. And then with Dr. Rousseau, um, you know, he, he kind of has a lot of everything that I wanted. So he's a great interpreter um, he's also, uh, a, a, he's kind of a hands-off teacher in a lot of ways, kind of, he would always say, um, well, you know, the students that don't try hard enough, they never were going to make it anyway. He would say stuff like that uh, occasionally, but mostly he didn't say much. It was sort of like I would play for him. He would give a few comments and historical perspective, but he was very kind of a, uh, hands-off and interested in having each student sound the way that student wanted to sound which is, uh, I think, kind of a misunderstood thing because I think a lot of his students have emulated his sound and sound a lot like him, but it was never a forced thing. It was never like, you should use this mouthpiece or you should use this saxophone. It was always sort of uh, just trying to find something that works.
0: Do you think that that's common, that students try to emulate the teachers that they respect so much?
1: Well, I think it's a huge part of development for anyone, that that, that there is definitely a period you go through I think for quite a while and maybe indefinitely to where I think when you're younger, you try to sort of, you, you copy, you copy someone and that's kind of how you learn. And that's why I think it's so important that students have, you know, more than one teacher because, you know, there are recordings I have when I was younger uh, doing the Albright where I sound virtually indistinguishable from John Sabin and his sound. And there are recordings I've made later on where I sound are just a whole lot like Eugene Rousseau. And as I've gotten older, sort of like all of these different elements have combined, you know, and and to and sort of my own way that I want to sound, which I'm still working on, but, you know, it's kind of how it all kind of fits together, I think. But I think it's really important for students to, to get different influences from extremely different types of players.
0: There's a couple of points in there. Like, do you think that breaking away from your teacher's influence is something that we need to do? Or is it okay to sort of continue in their footsteps?
1: Well, you know, I mean, that's kind of like, I think it's a natural process to break away, just sort of like a child does from a parent. You know, I think what happens is is you, you take what the teacher has to offer, you take all the things they have to offer. If you open up yourself to different influences, which I think is, like again, very important. And if you do that, then I think naturally uh, you move into different territory that, that becomes your personal territory. And I don't think it's a rebellious thing. I think it's simply, um, you know, we're not clones. We're not going to say, if we're, if we're honest and, and if we have a, something in our head that we want the music or the sound or our approach, if we want it to sound them a certain way or be a certain way. I think it's a very natural process to sort of, you know, to separate in that way.
0: Sure. The The way you described these teachers, it sounds like you spent quite a bit of time with them, probably at least a year. Where does the idea of the masterclass fit in? Because I see students really attending a lot of classes, and, and you've probably seen the same thing you, you give them. Do Do masterclasses have the same impact? Can they influence students as well to the the degree where they're trying to emulate the one-hour, you know, experience they've
1: had? I mean, I think there's an element of just being inspired, which is great. And also, you know, I think that, you know, one lesson with a teacher can give you a lot of really great information. And I think one or two years with a teacher can give you a lot of information, a lot of great, you know models and and things to to work with but i think sort of after a certain period of time i think that's kind of when you need to change um but as far as the one class thing goes i see a lot of value in that Um, i went to a class uh i wish i could go to more it's sort of weird when you become a a a teacher to university it's sort of sort of like this expectation that you stop going to classes and stop taking lessons from people. But I would kind of like to continue doing that because I went to this one, I was having this trouble with my air uh, because I've kind of been restructuring over the last couple of years. And I I had this issue with something about my air that I didn't like. Uh, It has to do with a certain focus of the sound, especially in the upper register, and especially with attacks. And I went to see, I was at a festival in Missouri last October and DeLong was the other guest and I went to his class and he did one thing. It wasn't even words. He, he, he just, he was trying to explain to a student that was having a similar problem to the one I was having. And he just blew really hard and moved his arm a certain way. And for some reason that clicked, you know, this sort of one little kind of insignificant thing that's sort of like, you know, anyone, anyone, most of the people looking at it would be like, well, of course, here's air support. Um, but it's so easy to overlook things. And I think that since a lot of what we deal with in terms of communicating information to a student is sort of in the realm of abstraction, you know, it's not, it's not so cut and dry, uh, different models work for different people. I think that going to these classes and hearing sort of like unique perspectives on, on, uh, some of these, uh, ways to approach, uh, learning and, and, uh, technique and all that I think is super valuable for everybody. You know,
0: do you think that sometimes it would be great if we just all kept having lessons or we checked in now and again with, with someone we were comfortable with?
1: Well, you know, I I was thinking that I might just do that because I, I know it's a little weird for me to call up, you know, somebody who's playing. I like Tim or Otis and say, Hey, can I play this for you? That seems like that's a little strange, but I don't really think it is that strange. I think that's probably good, you know, because, because that, that person is, especially with certain repertoire, you know, if I were to take, for example, um, the Albright Sonata and, and I were to take it to Tim, for example, and I were to say, Hey, um, could you hear this? I, I can imagine because I've played that piece for a very long time and I have probably a very different perspective on it than him. I can imagine that there would probably be a really good exchange of information, both ways that would not only be good for me and hopefully somewhat good for him, but would be good for our students, you know, just, just, you know, not only interpretive things, uh, but, but just technical things because they're, you know, the sort of different approaches to how you handle some of the technical problems. And as you work on some of these really difficult, uh, some of this really difficult repertoire, I think everybody ends up having a few little tricks that maybe other people aren't aware of. So I think, you know, I think it's probably really good to be open to sitting down with another pro and saying, Hey, let's, you know, let me play for you and hear your thoughts. And yeah,
0: it sounds good. You know, a good parallel perhaps is uh, sports people because at the very highest level, they all have a coach, you know, they're not doing it on their own. They're, they're there with someone who's uh, guiding them. And even if they're surpassed perhaps the ability of that coach on a, on a sheer sort of performance level they're still getting the feedback that helps them push ahead
1: and there's just so much that you know we get hyper focused on some things and sometimes that's at the expense of bigger things that we're overlooking you know it's just like when you're recording if you're doing a recording you really want a producer you really want someone there to say that didn't sound good or that sounded you know great or i think it's there's a uh, a ton of value in that yeah
0: kind of like having a a conscience an extra conscience sitting behind just reminding of of the things that we we overlooked or we don't want to acknowledge perhaps
1: yeah i mean i've done i've actually done this a little with some of my students um because you know there's there's value in hearing what a professional thinks there's also value in hearing what an amateur thinks or even someone that's not a musician because their their perspective on it is always going to be different i mean i listen to my mom who's not a musician more than anybody else, because I know that it, if I have something that, that is maybe a little strange, and I can make it work in a way that that she'll say, "Oh, yeah, I get that," then I know it's probably good. And with some of my students, you know, I do the same thing. It's a little hard with the younger students because they get very confused when you when you ask a younger student, like an undergraduate, you say, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Um, there's two directions they're going to go with that. One is they're 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 either completely intimidated by the whole idea of criticizing you and cannot handle it or they will just jump on board and be super happy to be able to criticize you and go overboard
0: they're like at last at last I can say what I think <laughs>
1: I don't like this I don't like this I don't like it okay alright well that's kind of alright it's fine
0: I can, it, I can handle it but part of that training is the ability to uh, offer constructive criticism I and mean, that's a skill that develops it's not something yeah, that's yeah. just innate. we
1: we'll work on that in class with I have them critique each other and work on their compliment sandwich, you know, so that they can handle it.
0: So should every compliment be followed by a, but, (laughs) you know, it it was really good, but.
1: (laughs) I think that the the whole idea of a compliment sandwich is to give someone sort of the psychological uh, space to be able to take the criticism. I think, you know, some students, honestly, my favorite students to teach are the ones that only want feedback they're not interested in in having their uh, ego saved. They're not interested in, in being, you know, having their hand held. They simply want the honest feedback of what they need to do to get better. And a lot of that, uh, I think, comes with maturity. You know, it's sort of like I I, I say to students, you know, if I say to you, uh, like I want you to hang this picture, and I'm standing back from the picture, and I say, "Well, move to the left, move to the right," is that a comment on you as a person of being inadequate or? not being good at hanging pictures it's not it's just simply that my perspective allows me a different view of what you're doing than you have and I think that that is probably a very good model for professionals kind of taking lessons or engaging with other professionals
0: so how do we maintain that balance of of criticism towards a student but being encouraging at the same time so they're not discouraged
1: well it's a I think it's that's where you kind of have to you know, work, people have to work on their empathy skills and understanding what a student can take. You know, you can't bombard them with everything that's wrong uh, immediately. Uh, you have to, there's always something good happening. You know what I mean? And, and and some students need you to point that out first and give them as much as they can take, push them a little bit farther than that, and then bring them back so that they get kind of this, this sort of, Uh, ability to sort of expand the degree of of feedback they can take, uh, without getting feeling threatened or sort of, you know, insecure and inadequate.
0: So it, it sounds like what you're describing that in your own teaching, you would adapt your teaching style to the individuality of each student. Is that right?
1: Well, I think that's extremely important. I think if you sit down with a student, you know, and we've all seen classes like this where the student will play and then the teacher has already has a list of things they want to talk about and I, and it's like you know <laughs> the first thing that we have to do as teachers is is pay attention you know what is going on with the student what what's blocking them you know not not just psychologically uh, but what's what sort of in their process of learning is in the way um you know is there something uh in the way with how they're engaging with with being able to play a musical phrase, what are they thinking? You know, it's sort of like, you know, if I go to a doctor, you know, and he says to me or he or she says to me and they say, you know, you, you've got this, 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 and this, and they don't ask me any questions. I'm like, what the hell? You know, I mean, we should be asking a lot, a lot of questions to try to figure out, you know, what is the student thinking what's going on in their head? And students are so different. Some are, you know, there's really kind of these two different ways of engaging with information. And there's the sort of surgical tool, right? The analytical tool that's many students that come into college for music have this already developed really well because they've been successful enough to get to that point. And then there's this other world that's sort of this abstract uh, way of dealing with, with information, which is, can be more emotional. Uh, it can be much more complex uh, and and revolves a lot around feeling. And I think both of those things are extremely important, but sometimes students are more in one world than the other. And you have to sort of exercise the muscles of that other, other realm in order to get them to kind of integrate those two together to be good learners that can deal with, uh, you know, analytical deliberate repetition, Uh, constant feedback and attention and then the other realm of you know stepping back and looking at it And how does that feel what does this feel like to blow this way what is this you know what's my more complex mental model of of engaging with the instrument engaging with music
0: do you ever see that i guess i call it the old school approach where there's a bit of a cookie cutter the teacher is treating each student the same telling them the same things and also it can be Quite harsh at times. Criticism is the number one method, not let's say encouragement. Do you still see that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I do some. Um, I guess there are different. Having studied in different countries, um, there's sort of a different way that teachers are with students. So, like if um, if a student from the United States that studied with Rousseau were to go study with, uh, you know, because I said on DeLong's class in Paris, if they were to go study with DeLong, they would think, this guy hates me. You know what I mean? Like, because Rousseau is so nice all the time. You know, you just feel like you're sitting in the room of a, you know, beloved elder. But when you go to uh, sit in the room with DeLong, it's it's sort of just directly to the point and distant is kind of what I felt uh, at the time. But I wasn't part of that class, so I can't really speak to that as a whole, um, but I think it's the expectation of the student is a lot of it. And the one thing I have to say, since we're talking about teachers uh, that do master classes, the thing that bothers me the most is is ambiguity. I when I hear a teacher say something like, "I need you to play more musically," I mean that is the least helpful thing, and I, you hear this all the time. But it's it's that's not helpful at all. I mean, what does that mean? Do you know, I need you to have more emotion. Well, I'm going to need you to be more clear. Like, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't mean anything to me, right? So by giving the student, finding, kind of meeting the student where they're at and finding what it is you can give them that they, is actually something that they can act on and, 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 and sort of as, the, as a step in their learning and not just some abstract fluff, you know, just drives me crazy
0: do you think there's room for abstraction i I see it in other art forms where particularly more visual art there is a lot of abstraction do you think it's got a place
1: i think it's extremely important yeah
0: okay so there must be a a time where you're trying to describe music in an abstract way not not a literal way
1: i mean absolutely and you know i think it's uh Again, I, as I was saying earlier, I think that's one of the sort of the realms of, of how people engage with information, sort of this abstract way of engaging with information, looking at a bigger picture. And I think that in, in when, you're, when you're learning saxophone or any, I think, musical instrument, you know, that is certainly an element when you're talking about music, uh, because it's, you know, you, you can say like, well, this phrase, you know, if you want it to sound sad then you can do this, 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 and this, or some combination of of these things as a way of trying to communicate that. So you can get very analytical, even in, in explaining a musical phrase. Um, but on the opposite side of that, when you're doing that with technique, so much of the time, the, the the sort of the way that we have to convey information is through abstraction, because there's so many things that are going on that we're not totally aware of, or, our brain doesn't have enough of the, you know, the somatosensory cortex devoted to it. Uh, For example, tongue position or all of these things that make a good, a good tone or a good articulation. And sometimes teachers will say things that are just, they sound crazy, but they resonate with the student. You know, um, a flute professor I watched once said, I want you to stand like an alien is sucking the brains out of the top of your head. (laughs) That's a very like, like, okay, well, you know, all right. Um, but, you know, it works for the student. And I think, you know, as teachers, sometimes we, we go into the, just as, just as learners, sometimes we go into the realm of do this, 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 and this. And then sometimes we go into the realm of, you know, uh, I want you to feel like aliens are sucking the brains out of your head. you know.
0: So that's, that's direct sort of, let's say, a direct reference to the imagination. Imagine something and see how it affects the music.
1: Yeah, I think it's extremely important.
0: Mm. What's your practice like these days? You are no doubt busy. How yeah. does it differ to the way you practiced? You mentioned all these great teachers you learned with. What are the difference now compared to when you're a student?
1: Well, I'm always searching. You know, I'm always trying to tweak things. Um, I have a part of my practice that's very technical uh, where I spend a lot of time you know repetition and a lot of my teaching and my practicing is in, kind of informed by uh neuroscience because I read a lot about how the brain learns and all that and then uh and then the other part of my practice will be uh sort of in that other realm of abstraction you know because it's, it's sort of like if i if i i've noticed lately cuz i've been trying experimenting doing long tones more and and uh it has kind of a a strange effect. Like there's a benefit to it. And I, but only if I focus on it sounding beautiful, you know, like if, if, so sometimes I have more success. If I find a melody that I love and I play through it 20 times, and then through that things start to kind of come together in a way that is not as, uh, uh, I guess sort of, analytically driven as to like, oh, well, this is too bright or this is too tight or this needs to loosen up or I need more air like this or more air like this. It's more of a, I want it to sound beautiful and then things start to kind of click. Um, you know, so I guess my practice is kind of the same as it's always been. Um, I have noticed that, I guess in the, in the general approach, but I've also noticed that, you know, as I've developed more cumulative technique, I actually need more repetitions than I think I do because it doesn't take me as long to learn it. So I lose all those learning repetitions. And then I get, and I think, well, I can play it perfectly. And then, you know, I I can't because I have to play it perfectly every time. And I just have to keep kind of going at it and trying to stay fresh. One thing I like to do before I start practicing, which is sort of focused on, uh, I guess the abstract way of dealing with tone is I listen to other players that I like and I, and I like to do YouTube because then I can see them. And if I can, I can listen and look at them for like 10 minutes before I start practicing, I have a much better practice session because I end up sort of, you know, emulating, copying certain things and then things kind of get moving out of my... I tend to get a little bit too analytical sometimes and I can paralyze myself, so I have to be careful.
0: <laughs> so are you able to distinguish the things that you like and the things that you don't like? Can you drop, let's say, things that bother you? Bother you? And just take on board the things that you like about watching one of those videos.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I do a pretty good job of that. I think, uh, I think a lot of saxophonists don't do a good job with that. Uh, A lot of musicians don't, Uh, you know, we become so it's important in our development that we have a very clear idea of what we want to sound like and how we, our approach to the instrument and the music And it becomes very narrow by necessity because we're defining ourselves. But if you don't change your lens, when you listen to someone else, you miss a lot. So if I listen to, uh, like who's a great player that I don't have the same approach to sound, uh, let's take, uh, let's take Claude DeLong, right? Uh, brilliant player. Uh, I do not have the same approach to sound as Claude DeLong. I, I, that's not my artistic focus or, whatever kind of focus at all. Um, so if I were to listen to him and, and just be irritated the whole time that it doesn't sound the way I think it should sound, then I miss all of the awesomeness that is his playing, you know? So if I can listen to it and sort of widen my view a little, then I start seeing all these things that are just brilliant that I love. And then I'll find some of those and kind of copy them in certain contexts. And yeah. Yeah.
0: Maybe analogy there is, you know, just think of our friends. We, we don't surround ourselves with people who are the same as us. We try to surround ourselves with different people. And those, yeah. those differences are the things that really make a friendship interesting. Not have on sa- someone saying the same things that you say and, you know, it's really the differences that you can respect. It doesn't mean you then become like that other person, but it means you can appreciate a different perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is really, if if you had a relationship with somebody that was just like you, I can't think of, well, I'm, I'll say this differently, I don't want to insult you, if I had a relationship with somebody that was just like me, I can't think of anything more irritating. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm already around myself all the time. I could use a break. Like, I, different perspective, you know, it's, it's, I think it's healthy.
0: Really. I don't know if this is an abstract or a specific question, but would you say that, you should practice as little as possible, or as much as possible.
1: Well, I think you should practice as much as you need to to accomplish your goals. But I think what's more important is that you practice. Uh, you practice well uh, because so many people don't. Um, they, you can play for six hours a day and not get better, you know, or you can play for a couple hours a day and be really good. Um, there's kind of a a general sweet spot. If you want to be world-class, you got to get your three hours in a day. You know, like I, if I do two hours a day, which I had to do for a long time, I was injured for a very long time. And, and if I have to do two hours a day, I can sound good, you know, but I can't sound great. Like three hours a day is the minimum to sound. I think what I would say is like what I hear in my head, you know, like that's what it takes.
0: So is there something really efficient that you do? that helps you save time and that that you also pass on to your students?
1: I have a really almost embarrassingly simple way of instructing students to practice um, that I also use, which is sort of like there are always, there are three questions we ask, right? Um, Where's the problem? What's the problem and how do I fix it? Right. And sort of like, and this, what this leads you to is to being very deliberate and sort of, uh, it gives you a, a good detachment uh, from sort of the psychological pressure of doing it right. Um, I think having a growth mindset is super important. And, and if you tell a student, um, the, the first thing you work on is to be able to identify where there's a problem. So, like, you know, just something simple if you're doing a scale and maybe they're rushing on a certain note or the color of a note is off in some way. It's too bright or it's sharp or something. Um, To identify that, uh, where it is, and then say, well, what is it? Well, my finger's coming up too early on my third finger. Okay, well, how do I fix it? Well, maybe I'll make an exercise for myself. And I do this all the time, uh, where I will work just on that finger in in kind of a similar context. Um, So that's uh, the kind of the simple way but I think that's how we learn everything you know we have to be able to you know you 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 develop your ability to detect something that's wrong and then you and where it's wrong then you develop the the sort of the knowledge base to know what it is that's wrong and then you develop the self teaching to be able to say, well how do I fix this?
0: What do you mean exactly when you say a growth mindset
1: well there you know in in uh, the psychology of learning there are sort of two different uh, ways of viewing the mind, um, one of which is actually wrong, which is sort of this in- entity mindset. And the, um, the idea of this, is, uh, of this particular way of thinking is that your brain and you are as developed as you're going to be. And either this is kind of where talent comes in. It's like, I'm as good at this as I am. And, and that's where I'm at. You know what I mean? So like if a student will come and say, well, I can't pay attention as if that is a fixed thing that cannot change or I can't hear this problem. Um, and, and one thing I stress a lot, and I have a whole lecture I give about, about this is that, uh, that's not how the brain works at all. You know, as we listen more, we get better at paying attention. As we pay attention more, we get better at that. Um, everything we have in our brain is like a muscle. You know, you don't expect your, your biceps to get bigger if you don't go to the gym. But if you go to the gym, you have a expectation that they will with the right kind of work. Cause that's what happens. We adapt in that way. Um, and, and I think that, that, that growth mindset is extremely important. And the first part of that is to kind of dispel this, this, I think ridiculous notion of talent, because I think that does a lot more damage than it does. Good. Um, students um, there are tons of studies that that show this but something somebody being good at something initially um, is not a predictor of their eventual success in that thing Um, there are different speeds of development all along how somebody develops in a skill and some people will get stuck or slow in a certain way and then they'll then they'll just go fly right through the next phase of their learning um so to get the student to realize you know i talk about this in a very real way with students and actually what happens in their brain when they learn, because it's a physical thing that changes um, to try to get them to uh, understand that uh, I'm sorry, you're not talented. Your mom still thinks you're special. That's great. (laughs) But uh, but let's uh, let's work on growing the things we need to grow and getting away from the psychological pressure of, you know, if I, if I'm in an entity mindset and I can't play something um, I think I'm, inadequate. That's a terrible thing. You know, but if you show a student a few times, like you can't play this now, but just do this, this, and this, and you show them that they can do it, then they have the patience and the psychological space that they need to spend four months on a lick, you know, on a particular part. And to know that it's not there now, but it will get there. I absolutely can't do it.
0: Yeah. So by adopting that approach, basically you're telling somebody that anything can be achieved. With the right method, the right approach.
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, we're never going to be perfect, but you know, yeah, I think, I think that's that's the message. And just put the time in and and be deliberate in your work. And, yeah.
0: Now there there are a couple of things you said that I just want to jump back to. There were two words you used. One was restructuring. And it sounds like you were adjusting some things in your own approach. And the second one was you were injured. You mentioned you had a long injury. Are those two things related? And first of all, what does restructuring mean to you? And is it something that we should be doing from time to time on our way through our careers?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's a kind of a personal thing for the individual. Um, I I, I haven't really talked about this a ton. I think I might talk more about it now because I have a job and I have a career, you know, but I didn't want to be a, known as, as, you know, because I, when I was younger, I was, I was winning a lot of competitions and things were going great. And then I had this accident and I was out of it for a long time and I didn't want to come back and be identified as identified with the injury instead of just my work. Right. So, but I was in a car accident um in two thousand four, two thousand five. And I had my neck was uh broken in the disc and I had my hip, part of my hip bone put in my neck, and I couldn't use an strap for years, and I had so just tons of procedures and several surgeries. And then around two thousand twelve I discovered the sax holder, which was the first thing that really allowed me to put in work. Uh, and then I started to get better, finally, because <laughs> it's weird, you know. You're like when you when you practice when you're younger and you practice four hours a day every day, and you're great. You kind of part of you thinks it's just how you are, and then you realize if you take enough time off that you're really not. Um, uh, and then I sort of uh, from that point was able to kind of rebuild and uh, get back to the level I needed to. And I'm, you know, I passed where I was before. But as far as the restructuring thing goes, there were certain parts of my playing, uh, just things I, I just didn't like, uh, uh, in terms of how I articulated and how I approached upper register, uh, upper register of the saxophone. It was a sort of this more, I, I, it's hard to explain, but it's it, what Europeans would call it. A lot of them, I will say what French people will call it is sort of like this American approach to air and articulation that can be somewhat less clear. And I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time listening to Formo and uh, Jérôme Laurent, who I think has got a just a wonderfully focused, beautiful sound and some other people uh, and kind of emulating that. And I just in the last six months, I think there were a lot of very careful work, have solved that problem but that was the sort of the restructuring um and i think that you know if you sound exactly like you want to sound now then you don't need to do that but i think some people sometimes do have to do that you know tiger woods did that right yeah you know and i think i think that's fine it's just sort of uh, i think part of the, the process you know, Doctor doctors would always say uh on arrive jamais One never arrives. And when I was younger, I was like, that's dumb. I'm totally going to (laughs) arrive. But I'm like, okay, I get it.
0: I know a car accident's an, let's say, an incident of chance in some ways. Do you see injury from people just playing the saxophone? And is it something that you talk about with students? Is there a way to keep yourself healthy so you can have a long career?
1: Well, you know, I have dealt with that with students. And the first thing you have to deal with is the psychology of it, which they need to get that guidance from someone that's trained in psychology. But, but what I tell them generally is don't panic. You know, this is something you can overcome. And there are some things you can't, unfortunately, like uh, focal dystonia is something that I think can be a, a real career ender. Uh, and it's, some, it's sort of one of those, it's a problem in, in the brain that's really hard to get around. Um, but most things you can. Um, the other part is having a long career is like the only thing that ever really got me over my injury completely, you know, to where I don't have chronic pain anymore. I don't, I can practice as long as I want is, is uh, physical exercise. And I've started exercising a lot in the last five years. And um, the reason that I do it all the time is because I have to, because things will break down. And I have to keep things strong. So that's part of it. Um, and students, I think, you know, a lot of times psychological stuff uh, is, is uh, that goes with the injury can actually be more damaging than the injury. But we I mean, I think everybody in their career at some point has to deal with an injury. Uh, and it's just, uh, you know, Again, if you have a growth mindset and you realize that these things aren't fixed, you're not broken forever, um, then you can kind of push past it.
0: So from 2005, did you stop music? Did you do something else or did you just struggle on through?
1: Well, I I moved to Minnesota and I started my doctorate, uh, which ended up taking a long time because I couldn't play for a lot of it. Uh, And I got a full-time job at Make Music is the the company that does finale Finale, and smart music yeah and i did uh, some computer stuff for them um i was a music production person i would yeah i was a totally different type of job but i tried to find a job knowing that i was going to be out of it for a while i tried to find a job that would give me experience that would have value when i eventually wanted to find a job for me technology was kind of i don't like theory i'm not good at it i don't like history uh i mean not, it's not that I don't like history. I don't like like history class. Um, those aren't could never be my areas of uh, its kind of secondary expertise. So I kind of did the technology thing, and I did that for a couple of years. And then uh, I did real estate for a little while, which turned out really nice. Um, the knowledge I had in that was ended up being very helpful, even though I never sold anything because I'm a terrible salesman. <laughs> I mean, just terrible. Like <laughs> really bad. There's a whole skill to that that I just, uh, I could develop. (laughs) I choose not to. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I, uh, did some other things. And then, then I was able to practice with a stand for a while, but I could only do about an hour because the muscular strain when the saxophone is on a fixed position and you're having to adjust your body to it uh, becomes too much. Harnesses were the same problem because there's a lot of muscular issues that happen when you're injured like that. And then uh, eventually, like I said, the sax holder kind of put the pressures in the right place. And right now I'm using the, um, the breathtaking, which is the closest thing to a neck strap that I've been able to use that holds the saxophone at exactly the right angle. The balance is good. And that thing is just amazing. So, yeah.
0: Did it ever cross your mind just to stop and you had some alternative career options? I mean, did you ever think to yourself, ah, it's too hard? No. So, what is it? What, what, what kept you going?
1: Well, I love music. You know, I think if I if my hand got cut off tomorrow uh, and I couldn't play saxophone anymore, I would find something else to do in music. I just, I just love music. I can't see doing anything else. I like teaching too. It's totally different than than being a performer. Um, but what a great career, you know? I mean, to have to be able to mentor and uh, and and get to know. And there's so much value in the relationship with students. Um, Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I never really considered quitting. I always figured I would get over it.
0: (laughs) That's great. Yeah. That, I mean, had you, were you aware of this growth mindset during that time or is that something you investigated during these times?
1: A lot of the reading I did on it was after the fact, but it was always kind of my mindset. Mm. And I think it just came from my parents, you know, And I think there are just so many things too, because I'm a little dyslexic and I'm not super good with certain things, Uh, some learning issues. And I think that because I overcame those, I was always aware of my ability and everybody's ability to, um, to, uh, you know, if you spend the time and the attention on something, you will get better at it. And I work with my kids on this too. A lot, you know, I mean, I'm in a, my, I'm married to a, I'm having a second marriage and, and I have a a biological son and I have three sort of, well, stepchildren and, and getting to know them over the last five years, you hear all sorts of things like, well, I'm not good at math. And to me, that's like a challenge, you know? So needless to say, now that child, Siphon, is really good at math. And she thinks she's like super smart with math. And she is now because we walked through the things and did the things she needed to get, to get good at that because that's growth mindset. Yeah.
0: So it's, I'm not good at something right now, but yep. I can overcome this.
1: Exactly. I would always say when a student says, the, the word I say, I think the most is yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't play this yet. yet. Or I can't do this yet.
0: You know, Preston. I think it's great that you are able to talk about these things. That you can talk about some issues that have come along, and also you, you've mentioned yourself described things that you don't feel that you're good at. I think it's great because so much of what we see from people now is their highlights. Oh yeah, it's the best things that happen to them each day, each year. Um, and musicians are no different. Here's my new album. Here's my concert. But the the sweat and the things that aren't working and or we don't hear about that. And I think it's a really important thing to share because one of the things that students are doing a lot of the time is struggling. They're overcoming issues and they might look at the teacher and think, oh, that teacher never has to do this. They're, they're talented or something. And I think it's good that we can acknowledge that, yeah, we we do struggle sometimes. We have limitations. And and to share that information means that students also can appreciate that, yeah, we we all go through these things to different degrees and in different areas. And we, we find a way to keep going. Part
1: of the thing with that is, uh, social media is really not helped with that. You know, cause it's sort of like we've learned all learned the importance of kind of branding ourselves. And, uh, and, you know, I would have so many, I've had people say to me in the past, you know, great teachers I've had, well, I never practiced. And it's like, well, you know, that's not true. Of course you did. But people want to have this sort of, this, uh, sort of special air about themselves where you know they really are great and uh it's not that they had to really work for it and, and and that's never the case i mean that's just never the case any great musician any great scientist person if you look at their life and you read about what they did to get where they are it's always the same story it's always the ability to you know have a degree of detachment from 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 the psychological pressure of being involved in the work, and this constant repetition of of uh, whatever uh, sort of learning process they need in order to accomplish the thing they're trying to accomplish, I thought about this and I thought like it would be really funny to put in my bio, you know, because bios are terrible because all I have is like all the great things that I've done and none of the crappy things I've done, which have been tons of them. Like I've lost so many more things than I want. And I thought I, sh- I was going to... And I might still do this, Put in my bio, um, that I lost the first international saxophone competition in d not
0: You lost? <laughs> nice.
1: Because <laughs> that's kind of funny. You know? It's like, well, why would you put that in there? Well, because I lost.
0: You could say I wasn't a prize winner at the following competitions.
1: <laughs> yeah, something maybe a little better word than what I said. But
0: yeah. Yeah. I think if you look at someone social media is a good example, but if you look at too many highlights, you actually start to believe that other people are having a better time than you are. And it's not good, not good for your mental health. It's not good.
1: It's not true either. It's very damaging for young people, especially. I mean, the suicide rate in adolescent girls has gone up uh, like an extreme amount uh, since Instagram came into the picture. And it's a sort of expectation of what your life should be versus what your life is. And it's just a that's not good.
0: One of my favorite movies for a long time was Four Weddings and a Funeral. And one of the scenes is they're sitting around the table having dinner and the, the four friends are sitting there and they have to each say what was really bad about their day. <laughs> All right. And they list their failings. They don't share their successes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And. They're like, oh, I just lost my business and all my money has gone. And, and the next person's like, oh, well, that was nothing, you know, I'm getting divorced. And, you know, they're, but they're focusing on instead of trying to one up each person there, the one downing.
1: Yeah. We, you know, we should start a thing where we all write, we have our bio and then we have our bio of failures. <laughs> you know, it's like I, my bio, I went to, I was a Fulbright scholar in France, but I was rejected three times before I got that grant, <laughs> You know, like the other side of it this year i was rejected and this year i was rejected or i won this competition and then i lost this six other competitions
0: yeah. i'm i'm curious about your interaction with composers because you've premiered pieces and it would seem that you've worked uh with the composers and i'm i'm curious to know if that's an important part of what you do
1: yeah i mean it's a little different now than it used to be i used to kind of think from a career standpoint of like well you know, if I get this, if I put my name on this joint, you know, this consortium thing for, um, Bernard Brands or someone that will be a great thing in my bio. And I didn't even really know the music of Bernard Rands. Uh, but now what I do is I, I only work with composers when I hear them, I get really excited. Um, and a lot of the music that I like is not sort of what I think is super fashionable in the saxophone world. Um, But there's a a couple composers I'm working with right now that I'm like super excited about. And uh, so now my only consideration is whether or not I like their music and I like them as a person and can work with them. That's kind of the only thing that I I think about. And I think it is important to commission and and get new music. And, um, you know, it used to be that we wanted new music just because we didn't have enough music. We have a lot of music now. Um, but I think artistically it's important, you know, to engage with another, you know, composer and say, hey, what could we do
0: here? You know? If you do have a new piece, is there a way that you can perform the piece multiple times as opposed to just the premiere and then move on? Is there something we can do to ensure that the music gets a few outings?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one thing I'm working on, and I don't want to mention the composer's name because it's not finalized, but he's a big composer, you know, a good a good composer, and one idea we had was to do, um, you know, cause the, tr- the, the model is let's do a concerto. Well, that, that's tough. You know, if, if I do a concerto, that's a really hard saxophone part, and a really hard band or orchestra part, it's not going to get that many performances, you know, the exception would be of course, like John Adams, uh, but the, most of the time, these pieces aren't going to get this and they're too expensive. So we had this idea of, of, of having 10 short movements. And having like three or four be an easy, easy level for the band and performer, and, and three or four being moderate level, and then you know three or four being a difficult piece that kind of all stand on their own. That 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 then the the performer could say, well, I want to do you know this movement, this movement, and this movement, and have a ten-minute, twelve-minute piece that would be a fitting of their particular uh, ability level and sort of whatever, however they wanted to put them together. So that's kind of a way of approaching um I th- I think a, a a new piece that can be played in in a bunch of in sort of different contexts. Uh the other one is is that you know writing for full orchestra writing for full band is great uh but again you're not going to get a ton of performances so maybe smaller the other piece I'm working on is a piece for saxophone uh and percussion ensemble that will be expanded to include strings. Uh, And the idea there is that it will be a smaller group so that if I wanted to do on a recital, for example, here, I wouldn't have to go to the orchestra director and say, oh, we need to rent the parts and get all 50 musicians together. We could just say, hey, we need, you know, one viola, two violins, string bass, cello, and then percussion. And all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier for people just to manage.
0: Is composition... And also an extension of that improvisation, something that forms part of the way that you make music?
1: I mean, my approach is I only really play things that speak to me, especially now. There are, of course, exceptions where we get paid. Um, <laughs> those are not as common as we would like them to be. <laughs> that does happen. Um, but I kind of only play music that I really uh, that I get excited about. And, and when I play something that I like, There are, you know, there's the, my engaging with the music becomes personal and I can sort of bring to it how I hear it sounding or what I feel like it should sound like. And then the improvisatory aspect, I think is more spontaneity, which can really only happen if you're working with musicians that you're comfortable with. Uh, but there are a lot of times in performances, I have a great pianist, uh, Casey Raffin. Uh, we play together all the time. He's a fantastic collaborator, just a great musician. And I'm so comfortable with him that there are times where he or I will just change something, you know, a little uh, change a phrase or change a dynamic or a speed or something. Uh, and I think that's, and both of our personalities and super fun and a lot of really cool things can happen. I think when you, have the freedom to do that.
0: Yeah. You know, I played with Sonsax a few weeks ago. The guys were great, of course, in the dress rehearsal. I played a semitone higher. And then when the group come in, they sounded right. wrong. They hadn't really noticed. Right, right. And they well, started fun. playing and they sound completely off. They're like, oh, what have I done? And they're looking, <laughs> they're looking at their mouthpieces and their necks and they're trying to work out what the problem was. Right. And then they look at me, who I'm killing myself on the floor.
1: <laughs> right, right. That's funny. Those and are it, great guys. Yeah,
0: yeah they're, they're great, great guys. But it's nice to be able to interact with the musicians who you work with, uh, partly because you know them, it's always a bit easier. You know how far you can push the fun element. And, uh-huh. But often music making is not like that. It's you playing with people you don't know, and it's kind of serious and dry, and you just get on with it. Right, but right. I think it's nice if we can bring a bit of humanity into uh, performance and also rehearsals as well
1: yeah, yeah i agree i mean because you want to have fun right because I, I the audience can tell if you're having fun or you're not having fun there's performances i've given where i was a wreck and it comes across and there are performances where i'm just enjoying myself and let's just do this and have a great time and it comes across
0: also yeah. now i've got a few rapid fire questions so a quick question with a quick answer uh, so, is there something that you believe?
1: No, I'm sorry. This is that uh, too quick? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry go ahead.
0: Is there something that you believe that few other people agree with?
1: When it comes to listening to other people, you have to change how you listen and stop being so damn critical and threatened. And I think a lot of people feel that. I don't feel like it's common for people to do that. I feel like the 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 norm is that when you hear someone that sounds different than you do. In your head or, you know, worse outwardly, you start just talking a bunch of criticism and garbage about them. And I think you need to listen, you know, I mean, there are things that can be wrong, right? We can hit wrong notes or wrong rhythms and those things are, you know, tangible things, but oftentimes it's not that it's just like, well, I didn't like his sound is rubbish or it's like, well, just stop and listen I mean, We play the same too, but let's not get carried away. You know, we, there's a ton of different approaches.
0: If you just had one piece of music that you could play from now on, which piece would you choose?
1: That is really hard. Um, Chubba Wumba? No, uh, let's think here. Do you that song? <laughs> I probably would could spend ten years playing the Franck. Yeah, there's a lot in there that I don't get totally yet. But I could do that. Or Albright, too.
0: You did mention Albright already a few times, so I was wondering if you might say that.
1: Yeah, I love that piece. I've worked on it for a long time. I'm, I'm ready to record it. I just uh, got to do it.
0: You know, we were just joking around before, but you know that expression, if you have to work on something for a long time, you have to work on something for a long time. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think... Great music for for sure. Like Granados' uh, Intermezzo, every time I I never get tired of that. Every time I play it, it's just so beautiful, and there's so much there. You know, and it's so simple too. It's amazing.
0: Now, if you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend your time?
1: Probably playing slow, beautiful melodies. Because if you only had an hour, you're never going to be technically really good, but you could be. You know, like a lot of older players, uh, you could be great at
0: melody. And who would you consider to be one of the most successful contributors to the world of saxophone?
1: Well, I mean, I have to say Tim McAllister. I've never, uh, you know, he and I are the same age. We were in band together at Interlock with Otis, actually, which is kind of funny because we're all Big Ten schools now. Um, But I have to say from, you know, there are a lot of great players. But as far as someone that's had an impact on the saxophone, I would have to go with him. Just because of the commissions he's had, you know the orchestras he's played with, how he's managed his career, which is a different beast altogether. Um, yeah, I would have to say I don't think of, I can't think of anyone that's had um, you know any players that are in the in the game now that have had more of an impact.
0: It's it's good to hear you mention somebody who's currently changing the world. You know,
1: yeah, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, he's done things that no saxophonist has ever done and reached audiences that we have not reached. I think it's great.
0: If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes?
1: Well, it's inevitable that you're going to make mistakes. I mean, okay or not okay, I guess, what is that? does that mean? Is there value in it? Then, yeah, I think there's value in, in learning from your from your mistakes.
0: Are you okay if you make mistakes on stage and afterwards, are you good with it? Or do you i better be <laughs> no or do you do you struggle with it you know
1: well it's weird you know because like there's sometimes like i have given some stinker performances <laughs> uh, in my career and and it always hurts really bad there's some i will still have not listened to and never will um and it always hurts really bad really bad but you you regroup and you know you move on, and there are some times where I won't play perfectly. But well, all the times I don't play perfectly, but there are some times where I, I maybe I don't have as good of a technical performance. Uh, but I, I feel like I, I somehow uh, there's something special, you know, like one or two things that just it's like yeah, and that feels great, and I can overlook just like like I can when I listen to other people, you know, because if you if you turn your critical ear on anyone. I was listening to uh, this great violinist. I don't think I know how to say his name. Uh, what is it? He was playing with um, an Amazing violinist. Anyway, if I turn my critical ear on him, I hear all sorts of problems. But, you know, you forget. You, you forgive those things. You put those aside because there's something else going on that's a lot better than that. It's a lot more meaningful. And also, you know, beauty in a lot of ways is kind of defined by imperfection. You know, anything that's too perfect, it's not human anymore.
0: Do you feel there's an expectation for perfection? I think particularly in the recording area, live is, I think people perhaps more accepting, but in in recording, do you feel driven to just keep fixing things until there's no mistakes?
1: I do, yeah. I also feel, you know, the recording medium is so different. It's sort of like sculpture, You know, you're not trying to put, you know, I have done some recordings, I'm putting together a CD right now, I've been working on for a while. And, you know, the approach is different. It's not, it's not like, you know, I want to go out and play this piece in front of people and be able to communicate something in 10 minutes. It's sort of like, this is the ideal of how I think this should sound. This is exactly what I hear. And that's tough that's a really difficult thing to do. It's a different approach. And it honestly, it's terrible. I, I, recording is something I hate doing. Um, I, but I think with students too, it becomes a problem because they hear a CD and they're like, Oh my gosh, this person's perfect. And you hear the same thing over and over again. When they hear them live, they're like, Oh, that's not as good as I thought it would be. Well, it's like, well, no, that's because it's, it's not a recording. And the other issue is technology. You know, when you have I, I, one little project, I've tried, have on my list to do this summer is to do a terrible recording of the boats are just completely out of tune and then fix everything post because you can and to put those side by side, uh, and just share it, uh, because you can do so many things in the studio that I don't do because it's kind of like a prior thing. Um, but there are so many ways that you can make things sound much better than they actually sound. And, uh, I think that is sets up a, a lot of pressure for people, you know, unrealistic expectation of a
0: performance. Do you think this sort of advent of way more live recordings that are appearing on YouTube, do you think this is a good development? Because it used to be we had studio recordings, very few live recordings from saxophone, but now there's so much performance that's live from festivals and uh, right. classes and all sorts of things. Do you think this is a really valuable development? Because we're actually hearing people you know, honestly play in front of people.
1: Yeah. I think it's great. I, I, I think it's great. And I, most of the recordings I do now, I have this sort of, I've been doing, uh, smaller pieces for, uh, that are sort of student pieces like the Chanson Pespier or Eccles, things like that. Um, partly for my own development, because, uh, as I'm trying to get comfortable with recording, it helps to have smaller projects. Um, but also a lot of these recordings are just run throughs and, and I think that's very, very valuable, uh, for the person listening and also for the person performing, you know, because now you go into a concert somewhere and you have to be prepared for the fact that it's going to be out there and that's a different world. You know, that's a different thing. It requires totally almost a different kind of player in some ways. And a different approach to um, to learning the music, because it, it can't; it has to be really good every time, as good as you possibly can do. Which you, you know, you would be the expectation expectation before, but you know, there is a little less pressure if I go play for fifteen people in, in some college, and I know no one's ever going to hear it. And maybe I don't feel good that week. I am like, you know what? They don't know better anyway. Whatever. <laughs> but we can't do that anymore. We cannot do that.
0: It's got to be really good. All the time. Every time. Now, you've been concerto soloist many times, played with bands and orchestras, chamber music, solo music, all of these things. Is there something that you do before you walk on stage that helps you to play at your best?
1: I focus on trying really hard, which is something I say to my students a lot. You need to try really hard, and it sounds stupid, but it's so true. Because it's so easy to get on autopilot, especially when you're in a high-pressure environment. And I, I think what I do is I say to myself, you know, just... And this sounds dumb. It's coming out of my mouth. But just try as hard as you can. You know, do the... Just keep your focus and just... And I say that to myself. And maybe I will do some visualization. That's important. Try not to let the the terrible visualization of disaster come in, which it always does. <laughs> uh and then uh yeah i think that's about it and also before i play the whole day i'm very low key and i i don't do that intentionally but i can always tell like i'm i'm kind of getting myself together for this you know outburst this uh, sort of my maximum uh effort i kind of have to lay back
0: What's the, the strangest or funniest situation you found yourself in when you're performing?
1: Well, I mean, there's a couple. There's one time my saxophone broke and I had to play on a Selmer.
0: <laughs> oh, no.
1: I know, right? Well, you know, like having to switch to anything can be, can be scary. Um, one time I did a competition where I, I had to use a totally different soprano saxophone and mouthpiece. Uh, I don't think it was funny at the time. I ended up winning, <laughs> but it was uh, – it was not good. Let's just say that. And then there was a, I had a concert in, um, in Uruguay that was in this, that was basically like a bathroom type situation. It was so reverberant. There was just no hope. Uh, and that was hard to deal with because I was playing Dase and Claw. <laughs> with all those notes, it's like, well, it just sounds like a constant wall of noise, you know? So I think that's probably, uh, that's probably about it. Yeah.
0: Now, you mentioned that social media can be kind of a two-edged sword, but where, where can we find out more things about you? What's your preferred platform where we can find out what you're up to?
1: Well, I have an uh, educational group, the closed educational group, and I'm doing more and more content. But as you know, being a content provider, it's, it's kind of tough sometimes to, to get things to you on, on, a, on a schedule. Um, but this ed group is called Preston saxophone and and it has like 500 some members. It's closed. You have to ask to join. Uh, But in that group uh, you know, I have some out of print method books like uh, Rudy Weedoff. I occasionally post about recordings I like, or I post my own uh, things that I do. Um, I would say that's probably the best place I have my website that I uh, update occasionally. Uh, but mostly it's Facebook and Instagram, you know, doing more and more Instagram. I think that's where people are now.
0: I'm just trying to reconcile your, not disdain for the danger of social media, but, um, and your, your perhaps dislike of sales. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, how do you, how do you find a balance as a, a serious musician, but at the same time you need to put yourself out there? I mean, you're not the first person to have challenges about that. Uh, how, how do you reconcile that in your own mind to let people know what you're doing?
1: Well, it really is a problem, you know, because so many of the times what makes somebody a good artist is the opposite of what makes somebody a good salesman. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and I don't necessarily want to post about how awesome I am. I don't necessarily want to cultivate an image that I know will be successful among certain target demographics. Um, so I hate that. Yet the world that we're in, um, you know, I don't have a manager. Uh, most people don't. I don't want to pay the money for it. It's not worth the re- There's not a good enough return on it. So we end up having to do all of these skills uh, that, that aren't, aren't skills that, you know, that we have really developed as far as like, well, how do I present myself? Or how do I, and I talk to this my students about this, how do I present myself professionally? You know, how do I market myself? I mean, where, where's the, you know, you see so many people online that are constantly talking about how great they are. Uh, and that's not the right approach. That always comes across bad. But at the same time, if you don't get in the water at all, um, no one will know who you are. So, uh, you know, for me, I try to find ways to contribute in things that I think are valuable and, and, and kind of have an attitude of sharing You know, I, I share a lot of people's posts because I think, you know, we can, this is not a huge field. We can lift up, we can, there's room for us. We can just lift ourselves up and lift other people up. I think that's probably good.
0: Maybe there's an opening for you instead of the top five, you could do the, the bottom five. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> here's, here's the, uh, the, the five worst things that have, uh, come out of my saxophone today.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's hard to show that weakness. You know, teachers used to um, turn away from their students and not even show them what they were doing because they didn't want the student to steal it. You know, and it's gotten a lot better than that now, but it's still tough. You know, people don't want to show weakness, um, which is understandable. You know, it's hard for anyone, I think. You know, if I have a bad recording, I do. I want it to go into the memory hole. I don't want... I don't want anybody to see that. But at the same point, there's probably value in that. you
0: know. Now, with a little bit of hindsight, is there a piece of advice you would like to give to your younger self when you were starting out that might have helped you to make decisions at that time? Huh.
1: Don't get injured? <laughs> I, I think I probably would have started recording before my injury because there was a period there where I could have. I just didn't feel like it was ready but I've realized as I've gotten older that I'm never going to feel like it's ready. I have a lot of things that I've done uh, that I have on my computer here that will never see the light of day. And it's really hard to find the balance of, you know, Rousseau so would say to me, you just have to do it. Don't, you know, don't worry about it being perfect. Just, just do it. You know? And I think there's, that's probably what I would tell myself. Sometimes you just gotta, just gotta do it. But there's a, there's a, and there's a, it's a tricky situation too because so many times people put out CDs before they're ready and then that's around forever and it's like, well, that wasn't great so, so still working on this, as you can tell but,
0: yeah Are there any changes that you've seen in the saxophone? And are there things that have stayed the same that have surprised you?
1: Well I think that thing that's changed over the last 15 years, which is nice is there's a lot, there's a broader acceptance of a variety of ways of approaching the music, the teaching and the repertoire, you know, used to it was sort of like the field was in a lot of ways kind of narrow. Uh, It was like a right way to do things. And then there was, you know, this other teachers way of doing things. I think that's changed, which I think is really good. Um, You know, I play differently. Um my sound is different than than my teachers. And I've had people say to me, Oh, uh, you know, I love this sound, it's so fresh and it's new. And I'm like, Well, it's not new, you know. The the thing that hasn't changed is um some of these older way of playing, uh older approach to sound, has kind of found a home, I think, in in in, in some modern players. I, I think me being one of them where uh, that really hasn't uh, it's kind of come back to center. It has, it was so extreme there for a while of like everything having to sound a certain kind of way, which I didn't really like. And I feel like some of this it's kind of come back around where people are starting to be uh, more flexible. So I don't know. I didn't answer that super well, but
0: yeah. <laughs> Is there um, a recent project I know you've talked about your CD, but is there something you're working on at the moment that you'd like to share with everybody? This is your, this is your sales pitch opportunity.
1: Oh, my sales pitch. Okay. <laughs> well, while I'm doing more educational recordings, I'm working on um, a couple more pieces for examples for students. And what I do is I go online. It's kind of nice having the relationship with Make Music because I've done some educational writing for them. And they can say, "Well, the piece that students are playing the most is the Eccles." And then I go online, and I can't find any recordings of the Eccles that are both musically satisfying and actually the tempos that are written and kind of how the piece was originally conceived uh, for 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 uh, violin. Uh, I think it was violin. That's where I, the most historical recordings I found were on violin. So doing something like that, I think, is good because then students have a reference. Of how, like, oh well, it can't sound like this. Um, the same thing with like the Sicilian Lantier. I could not find a good recording of that piece, and there's, I think, it's a good piece educationally for younger students. So I'm doing more of that. I also have quite a busy concert season coming up, um, where I'm going to uh, Mexico for two festivals, and that'll be fun. And then uh, doing some work with a guitarist in Costa Rica that I think is just amazing. Hopefully, that will continue. And then um uh I think I'm doing something in a couple things in Canada. You know, just uh doing doing music, mostly recording, and then when I get this CD done, I think that will be my my uh it's kinda like uh I don't want to be crude, but breaking the seal. I feel like once I get one done, I'll be able to do a lot more. I recorded the Libby Larsons Holy Roller. I think it's the only recording I've ever made that I feel like is done, and I'm happy with it. Um, and then I have uh, other other music that I am mixing right now that I played a lot last year. So just that stuff.
0: So Preston, you've made already you're you've made a significant contribution to music over the last few decades, and it continues to this day. What do you see for yourself in the coming decades?
1: Well, I want to be. I, you know, I want to just get it to be able to play how I hear it. And I'm going to keep working on that until I get it. Uh, that's basically it. You know, as far as, I mean, I have a job, I have a great job, this office, I hope to die here. Like why? I mean, my job is, I have Rousseau's job. It's, it's like done with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to, uh, reach a point where i feel like i play the way i hear in my head and then i also want to really contribute towards some of the things that we've talked about in terms of of the getting students to understand um, that the talent is a lie and it's damaging and that there's a lot of uh you can be really empowered once you embrace that idea and also, you know, we're so lucky because as teachers, you have this uh, sort of rippling out effect, you know, when you have a student and you, and you mentor them and you bring them up and you give them these ideas and then they add their own ideas and then that goes on to the next person. And the next person, It's a, a really positive way to, to live, I think. I think that's, I want to keep doing that. Yeah,
0: Preston, thank you very much for your time this afternoon
1: oh yeah thanks a lot barry it's been fun
0: been great to talk to you uh without beer involved
1: (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) would have been a different type of conversation probably some more (laughs) profanity
0: (laughs) something like that so (laughs) i uh, wish you all the best and um, look forward to seeing you again in the near future thanks preston bye just before you go a quick reminder to let you know that show notes any links and a full text transcript are also available It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sachs Show.